Welcome to Bruin Success, where we talk to UCLA alumni and explore the many paths to success beyond UCLA. I'm your host, Katie Russo, and today I'm honored to be joined by Leslie Gilbert Lurie, lawyer, human rights and children's rights advocate, author, philanthropist, and former television executive. In addition, she is a member of the UCLA Foundation Board of Directors and chair of its Nominating and Governance Committee. She's a member of the Board of Advisors to the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center and the UCLA School of Law. Leslie graduated from UCLA in 1981 with degrees in Communication Studies and Political Science and then continued at UCLA to earn her JD from the UCLA School of Law. Leslie, welcome to Bruin Success. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to join us today. Thank you for having me. So as you frequently speak on human rights issues and at this momentous time in our country's history, what do you think is the greatest human rights crisis we face right now? There are so many human rights crises. (laughs) It's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) That is a really difficult question because there are so many human rights crises we face at the same time. Right. Uh, I would say that uh, probably... Domestically and globally, though, the uh, at least one of the paramount crises is the growing inequity between the few who have so much and the many who need so much. And to watch that disparity grow in the United States and around the world is an enormous human rights crisis. Um, Clearly, the environment and our right to clean air is another, um, you know, extremely uh, troubling situation and the rise of autocrats around the world and the jeopardy to democracy that that has posed is another human rights crisis. Everywhere we look, there are human rights crises that build on other human rights crises. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it's, it's, I think there's so much going on right now. And there's so many as the ones, even the ones you mentioned that feed into each other, um, that, you know, I think we have, we have a lot of work ahead of us. That's for sure. We do. We do. So with your political and legal experience, what advice would you give to alumni and students who may be finding their voice even more over the course of this year and want to find ways to get more involved in politics and advocacy to address societal challenges? I would begin by saying, do that. Use your voices, (laughs) use your power. I think one of the lessons I've learned personally in my life and I've learned uh, through being a student of the Holocaust, I wrote a memoir uh, with my mother called Bending Toward the Sun about uh, the Holocaust and the transmission of trauma from generation to generation. And you know, one of the lessons of the Holocaust is never to assume that leaders or other citizens are going to do what needs to be done. If we see something that is wrong in our world or something that's missing in our world, we have the power within ourselves to to make changes. And people who did in the Holocaust, the upstanders, as we call them, were able to bring about an enormous amount of uh, change for the better. So I really encourage students to 
look for ways to make a difference and start with things you're most passionate about, things that you understand the best that are closest to home, that make you feel um, the most uncomfortable. Pursue those issues and don't assume that anybody else is better equipped or more entitled to step into positions of power. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And I think, like you said, I think, you know, knowing that you have power no matter where you're at and focusing on those things that, like you said, what, what are the things that, you know, maybe you, you go on a rant or vent to your friends about and you get motivated to change, use your voice and use, you know, whatever platform you have to speak up about those issues. Because I think that's such a good point you raise about, I think a lot of people, even before this year, might we might have been more comfortable, right, to wait around and let you know more people out there that are maybe community organizers or activists. Oh, they're going to take care of it. They're going to they're going to fix things. They're going to kind of move move our agenda forward in the right direction. But you know that's not always the case. And like you said, you have just as much power as that person who might even have more of the organizing experience to be able to speak up and join join forces and kind of, you know, use your power that way. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I'm so delighted to see in the world today is younger people recognizing their own power, whether it's to rise up against guns in schools or rise up to take places in Congress or in positions of leadership. I feel that when I was sort of coming of age, sometimes I would think about running for a certain office or doing something. And there was such a sense in Los Angeles of, well, you can't really do that because these people have been waiting in line for this job or these people. And I feel like now people are just taking that power and saying, no one else is doing this well. So we're going to take advantage of doing that. So from your professional bio, I know you spent much of your earlier career as a television executive. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned while at NBC? I think going to NBC confirmed my sense that it's worth taking risks in your career and in your life, that just because you study a certain subject or go to a certain graduate school, if something else calls to you, life is long. And everything that you've done leading up to that point is still going to help allow you to do what you're doing better. So for me, I had always been a political uh, person and I wanted to make a difference in the world. I went to law school, I I clerked for a judge, I worked for a law firm and, but I didn't, I looked around at the people older than me at the law firm and rather than thinking that they're so different from me, I thought they're not that different and they don't seem that happy with their careers. And then I looked at my friends who were, working in the television industry and they all seemed to be love they all seemed to love what they were doing and i thought it would be really fun to go and get to be creative and try to change the world um, through that avenue and i really thought i could come back and be a lawyer at a later point in my life if i choose to and i just decided to take that risk i had the opportunity to take that risk and so what i learned was that you can learn on the job that, um, and and in fact, the first opening at NBC happened to be in comedy. I was hired to be a junior executive in comedy. 
And I worried about taking that job because I thought I'm not that funny, but it turned out it was great that my first job was in an area there that was one of my weaknesses, so to speak, not really one of my strengths because I became funnier and I learned to really enjoy comedy in a much fuller way than I had before. And what I learned from that experience afterward in a lot of the more serious endeavors I took on, I mean, actually the television business is a very serious endeavor, but from there, I uh, went to work in, uh, for example, uh, when I was on the Los Angeles County Board of Education from there, I realized how much further I got from being able to be funny also and being really comfortable speaking in public, which my time at NBC really helped me to do. Right. So each experience made me better at the next experience. Yeah. I, that's that's wonderful, and I I love the point you made, and even just the the quick phrase you said where you said life is long. Um, I think sometimes there is this 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 feeling or myth and whatever we want to call it that you know if you're multifaceted and you have all these different interests, oh well, you need to have this kind of linear trajectory. You need to go focus your career in this way, but it's it's you know, okay. And it's important. And actually it's encouraged to try those different things. And I think as, just as you said, to take those risks and lean into an area that you may want to test out and see, knowing that just as you said, life is long, you're going to have time to do different things and find, you know, what you like best and to learn from each of those experiences so that you are more equipped for the next one. I, I think that's such great advice. Absolutely. And I would say, up until now, there was no point in my life where I could have predicted what I would be doing five years later. Wow. I always took the most interesting, best opportunity available to me at that time. And then that always just sort of broadened the base that widened the opportunities available to me from there. I never, you know, I, I didn't take one job or one opportunity because I thought it would lead to something better 10 years from now. I took mm -hmm. the thing that interested me most at the time. At the time. Yep. Yep. Love that. So can you talk um, to me about your experience writing your book, Bending Toward the Sun? And I'm curious if you plan on writing more books. Yes, I, I hope to write more books <laughs> and I've written drafts of more books. I do hope to write, um, I do hope to have that time and focus to, to write more books. I really loved the experience of writing my book. It came about accidentally, as I mentioned, so many things just uh, sort of happened, um, but I was at my mother's house one day. My mother's a Holocaust survivor and she seemed frustrated and I asked her what was wrong and she said she felt that she had this very important story to tell but she was having a hard time writing it herself and she was having a hard time writing it with friends and I just sort of said well maybe I can help you and I always say I don't think she heard me say maybe so in the next <laughs> sentence she was saying uh when do we start and that began this that began this 10-year journey over which I interviewed my mother, her sister, her two, her three cousins and two uncles, all of whom hid in an attic together during the Holocaust. 
Um, and we, I also interviewed my sister and brother and cousins and the next generation and our children. And um, I didn't know at first, I had never written a book. So, but I decided that even if it were a disaster, I'd have a really interesting record and a story to tell my own children and grandchildren. Right. But I wrote a draft, I got a lot of feedback. I wrote a better draft and ultimately we found an agent, HarperCollins published the book. It has, there probably hasn't been a month period since we published the book 10 years ago that we haven't spoken to a, an auditorium full of students, a wow. book club and a university uh, class. Uh, it's just, it's taken on a life of its own. That's amazing. Wow. That's, I, it's, you know, even as you said, I think you had mentioned, you know, if it doesn't turn into something, at least you have this experience and this record, this draft, but I mean, I, I can only imagine what a powerful experience, I think, even as you shared to not only interview your mother, siblings, but then also, I think that was fascinating thinking about the next generation. So as you said, your, your siblings and their children and to kind of see how those experiences have shaped your your family line and things like that but wow that's that's amazing and so powerful to see as you said you know published 10 years ago and still resonating with the community and so many different groups today that you're doing speaking engagements and things like that that's that's wonderful and it's such an interesting example to me of if you put something out there about yourself how much more comes back to you. From this experience, we were invited to speak in Poland. My mother and I had this experience where we went back to my mother's village that she hadn't been to in 70 years since she left as a seven-year-old. And we were walking down a little village road to look for her old house. And an 11-year-old girl walked by us on the street and she said, I know you. And we thought, how could she know us? And it turned out this village had just celebrated its 600 year anniversary. And her teacher had noticed that in all the celebration, there was no mention of the Jewish families who had lived in this village before the war. So she gave this girl an assignment to do a report on the Jewish families. And in the center of this girl's report was a picture of my mom and me that she had found on the internet. So she oh called her gosh. teacher. She had just won an award from the mayor. So it made us realize oh what a small world this is. And then on a very uh, local level, one of the things that we noticed is that the more challenged the school, I thought our book you know, might resonate with Jewish students or students who sure. were familiar with the Holocaust. But what we found was exactly the opposite. The more challenge the students' lives, the less familiar almost they were personally with the Holocaust, the more our story seemed to really resonate with students. We spoke a few years ago at Jordan High School, which is the, um, at the time at least, was the uh, lowest ranked school in the LA Unified School District. It's surrounded by housing projects by Jordan Downs and Nickerson Gardens. Um, originally, the history teacher had not even wanted me to bring extra books. He said, they're just going to collect us. And what we found is we spent an hour and a half in the library talking to 
over 200 students. And this is, has been our experience at school after school. When we were finished, the students waited in line. They all skipped their lunch. They wanted to give my mother a hug, tell them about herself. And by the time we got home, the librarian had sent me an email. She said, I did not know how our students would respond to you. She said, but it's such a testament to the common humanity in all of us. And then two weeks later, the history teacher was emailing saying, where do I get more books? I can't keep them on the shelf. And it really has made us realize that there is this common humanity that when we, that, you know, that despite this great divide in our country and all this disparity, I have seen a great deal of unitedness, if that's a word, but yeah. a great deal of connection on a human level. Wow. Those, those are amazing stories. I was going to say before you even shared that comment, I was just thinking like the first story about the little girl in the village, like just the power of connection and how incredible that she had done the report and had the photo of you and your mother and her report and everything like that. And then just hearing about the high school story, I think just as you said, um, I think there's a lot of times where when we put something out there that is about ourselves, our lives, and, you know, kind of to be very vulnerable and sharing those stories with others, there is a huge risk in that. And, and will people, will anyone find, you know, will anyone resonate with this? Am I just going to write this blog and no one's ever going to read my blog? You know, I think so many of us think that nowadays there's so much content and stories out there. Um, but I think it just shows, as you said, just the power of connection. And like you said, that, that humanity that we all experience all different challenges, opportunities, and moments in our lives. And to be able to find those moments of connection with each other that we're able to relate and, and unite and come together. I think it is really, um, it, it gives, I think that strong sense of hope and optimism. I think so. And it's really not needing to be perfect, putting something out there. We encourage yeah. students all the time and adults to journal, to, to write their own stories, to ask relatives questions about their own lives while they have the opportunity. Right. Because so many people come up to us and they say they miss that. And we never know what story we're going to end up wanting to tell about our lives. So the more we journal, the more we ask other people questions, doing what you're doing and you know, a podcast, the, yeah. like all of that, each thing leads to something else. You know, one other just story about our book that I'm remembering is uh, one of the characters in our book is my mother's first friend when she came to the United States uh, was a, a student at the junior high school where she was in New York. It was her best friend, Marilyn. And as we, uh, not Marilyn, now I'm blanking on her name suddenly. Um, but as we wrote the book, I kept looking for this woman, looking for this woman and, then one of our first events was at the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust when we, after we wrote the book and some woman came up to my mom right after she said, we read and she said, Rita, do you know who I am? And it was this woman who I had searched on the internet and looked for all over and it turned out she's living in Newport Beach and she heard about my mother and came to her first book event. So it's just led to one thing after another like that, that we never would have, experienced had we not written this book. Right. Wow. Those are, those are just such powerful stories. I love it. 
So we all know that women face unique challenges in the workplace. And of course, there's an ongoing fight for gender equity across the board. As an admirable female leader, what advice do you have for our women listeners aspiring to lead in maybe not only their organizations, but also in the community? I would encourage women listeners to set their sights on anything they want to lead. I would say that my experience is that, first of all, the world needs more women leaders. I think if we had more women leaders, we would have more listening uh, as opposed to talking and more openness to getting to yes, to compromise, to um, being more creative about our solutions. I've worked with incredible male leaders too, but there's really a need for women leaders. And um, it's incredible that how much of a, uh, a vacuum there still is in terms of women at the very top of organizations. And so I really encourage women not only to dream of holding positions at the highest levels and aspire to hold positions at the highest levels and qualify themselves to have positions at the highest levels, but also to fight for what's necessary to get there, to fight for the organizations they work in, to have good um, policies for families, to have good paternity leave and maternity leave policies, to have great parenting policies when um, organizations are not good to fathers and fathers taking time to be with their families, then that in turn puts women at a disadvantage. So mm-hmm. we, need, um, we need to ensure that organizations at every level value women, understand the structural impediments to holding us back because they really exist in almost every organization. Even today, there's a lack of awareness of why there are not more women at the top. And that um, reason is not that women are not just as good at leading and just as interested in leading. We just have to break down a lot of structural barriers and uh, men aren't going to do that first and foremost because it's not in male, it's not in men's interest to do it. It's in women's interest to do it. So we need to fight for that and get that for ourselves. Right. And I would also really encourage women to support other women and to look out for other women and to mentor other women. Yeah, I was going to say your all those points. I I agree with everything you said, and I was thinking that same thing as you were talking. Like, I think we've seen an increase of you know women lifting up other women and and coming together. And I think it's so important for us to find our allies and those people that we can have in our support system and in our networks to once again, as you said, it's not like there's not an interest of women being in those top positions and in the C-suite or or at the top of organizations as leaders. It's that there are still significant barriers and hurdles for women to have to, you know, continue to chip away at. And so I think finding those allies and like you said, mentors and your advocates who can continue to, and not only other, I think women, but, you know, men who, who recognize some of these issues and you can speak to them and share, you know, we need your help in, in breaking these things down. Um, but yeah, I, everything you said, I would just I wholeheartedly agree. I notice even today at the highest levels of organizations and boards on which I serve, 
it surprises me how often I will say to a man, you know, that's a sexist comment. And they, you know, and, and, you know, it's like male fragility, if I can borrow the, the phrase, but, you know, there, there's such a sensitivity to that. And there's such a sense of, no, I am not, you know, I'm not sexist, but, but, um, but it comes out in all sorts of ways where something will be important to me on a board and you know a man will say something like oh no don't get so upset about that and um and i will look at them and i'll say it is an important issue that i'm concerned about and i know you would never say that to a man and you know and then they go bend over backwards to explain why they would say it exactly like that to a man but you know right but they wouldn't right we know otherwise yep right and yep. I think we also still have to very much be on the lookout for sexual harassment in um, at the university, in the workplace, everywhere where men are still primarily in positions of holding power and granting access to power. Yeah. We have to make sure that that is not being um, controlled, you know, in ways by uh, sexual harassment. Yeah, such an such an important point. Absolutely. So many UCLA alumni and even current students aspire to have a resume and even a professional bio that reads like yours. What words of advice would you give to our alumni, especially those that, you know, are maybe early or kind of mid-career level, um, and then even current students who want to accomplish a lot and have a lot of things that they know they want to do in life, but are kind of just starting out or finding their way? Well, you can you can buy a resume like mine at Target, I think, for four dollars or no. Um, uh, I would say that I I would say I guess I would think about it more like a Zen in the art of archery. Uh, uh, metaphor that I'm, I'm not sure that it would be helpful. I think it would be overwhelming to start out and say, my goal is to have 30 different things on my resume or 40 different things on my resume. I'm not even sure I would encourage it. To, in, in some ways, I would say there's a, uh, a weakness in my resume. I'm interested in so many things that Sometimes I think I, my life would be calmer and perhaps even uh, uh, I might have felt more satisfaction if I stayed with one thing longer or I did fewer things. Sometimes I feel that my life has almost been like a buffet where every part of it is amazing, but when there's so much of it, you can't completely appreciate any one thing. So I'm not sure that the breadth of my resume is something that I would necessarily encourage other people to aspire to. But what I would say is I would more focus on at any given time is my, is the balance in my life, what it should be. Do I have the time I want to spend with my family, with my closest friends, 
on my career, on making the world better? Does it feel on exercise and health? Does it feel like the right balance to me? And if something feels like it's missing, I would shore up that piece. Like I very much have been guided by my instinct of if something feels like it's missing, I try to find what that is. And I guess, you know, part of my Holocaust background led me to really feel early on that I was born into a very broken world. And I felt like a real responsibility to repair it. And so I think to some extent, there's so much that need to be that needs to be repaired that I, I notice it and I go and try to fix that. But I certainly didn't start out. I don't think a goal is to have a big expansive resume. I think a goal is to lead a meaningful, satisfying life. Yeah. Wow. I, I love that. I'm also curious. So one of the things you had shared there is, you know, when you notice something's missing or maybe it's out of balance, how do you, when you do have that moment, um, how do you work through that? Like, and how do you process, are there mentors or people that you go to? How do you work through figuring out, you know, what that thing is, what, what's missing or, or what's out of balance? Well, I'm really glad that's a great question. Um, because I did want to mention somewhere. I'm not sure I use mentors this way, but I would say that I have gotten in large part where I've gotten because I have had great mentors. I think every step along the way from high school to college to law school to my legal jobs to, you know, my television career and uh, my civic life, I have always found people whom I respect and want to learn from and gotten that begged them to take me under their wings. So I've, you know, I've learned from so many people, so much of who I am was borrowing the best of so many other people. And so, um, so I really appreciate mentors and I really encourage people to find people they respect and uh, people love to be mentors. So, mm -hmm. so I encourage people to not be shy about finding them. In terms of when I have felt my life is out of balance, um, I think for me, the way it's worked is if I feel sort of um, a loss or a sadness or something missing, I, it forces me to, I almost double my energy. I throw a lot of things up in the air till something sticks. You know, I, I never wait for the thing that's missing to walk in my office door. Sometimes now that I'm uh, much older, sometimes things do just walk in my door, but um, oftentimes throughout my life, I've gone to find the things I wanted to do. I would say most of my career, and maybe this was a product in part of being a woman, in part of being slightly shy when I was younger, but so often, whatever job I wanted or whatever position or whatever board I wanted to be on, I pursued it. I didn't wait for the phone to ring. I didn't wait for people to say of all the people in the world, she's perfect. I kind of walked in the door and tried to show people why I would be the obvious person. And sometimes I would try for something and not get what I wanted at first. I'd get something else and get my foot in the door. And then it would work out that I got the position I wanted. So, um, so I think being proactive is really important. I think waiting to be noticed is, 
um, sort of a fantasy because there are so many talented people in the world. I mean, one of the things, this is a longer answer than you probably asked for, but- um, It's great. one of the things that I uh, have always said is, you know, I don't think that for me, I was ever the, I was never the best athlete on the teams I played on or the smartest person in the room. I think I'm, was a good athlete. I think I'm a smart person. I think I have a lot of ideas, but what I think I had that was the secret sauce is I wanted what I wanted so much more than anyone around me. And I was willing to work as hard as I had to work to achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And that hard work, I think, went uh, way farther than, you know, than other ability that I might not have. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. No, your, your answer was incredible. And so many, I think so many amazing nuggets, just even in that answer alone, of course, in the whole interview for sure. But um, I think it's so true when you think about just how far a work, a strong work ethic and passion can take you. And I think, like you said, there are so many talented people in the world. And, you know, now, especially the job market is so competitive, especially for, you know, some of those roles at all the companies that people want to work for Google, Facebook, Apple. Um, and you have to, you know, you have to go after it and pursue it, as you said, and, and you can't wait around. Um, and you can show people. And, and once again, I think to your point about mentors, having those people in your support system and your network that can vouch for you or send a recommendation, you know, on your behalf and things like that, and know that, you know, you are the right person for the job, but you have to, you, like you said, you have to want it more than others. And I think that really can take you very far. So how has UCLA and your experience at UCLA impacted your life as a whole? I guess I would say, aside from my parents, I can't think of anything that has impacted my life as a whole more than having been a student at UCLA. Um, First of all, I met my husband at UCLA. He happened to have been my TA when I was 18 years old (laughs) in a communications law class, in Jeff Cowan's communications law class at UCLA. We didn't date for 12 years after that, but I did meet him at UCLA. I um, clearly got my law degree at UCLA, which then impacted um, my first job, which was a law clerk to Judge Harry Pragerson, who also was a student body president at UCLA. And he was a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judge and an amazing man. And I was introduced to him by the Dean of the Law School when I was a law student. one of the things I'm proudest of is having to help found a nonprofit organization in Los Angeles called the Alliance for Children's Rights. And uh, the person I brainstormed about this with was my classmate in law school at UCLA, Pam Moore, who told me about all this young at-risk people in Los Angeles who needed representation and the lack of people to do that. So we started the Alliance for Children's Rights and I met her in law school. Uh, I met Zevyar Slavsky, the young city councilman who then became a supervisor and is now my colleague on the foundation board. And um, he appointed me years later as his representative to the Los Angeles County Board of Education where I served for 15 years. 
I, uh, and then he also appointed me to be on the Los Angeles County Blue Ribbon Commission to restructure child welfare in LA County, which I'm also very proud of. So in addition to, and I also think going to UCLA has always given me that sense that it doesn't matter. I always felt the thing that's most beautiful about UCLA is even though it's so large and so, um, you know, endless in terms of its possibilities, you can find a way to do anything you want to do there and achieve anything you want. And I think that gave me the confidence to think I could do that out in the world also. So I have a lot of appreciation for all that I learned um, from being at UCLA and clearly three of the boards I'm on today that are most right. important to me are UCLA boards. So yeah. I attribute much of my uh, who I am to having been a student at UCLA. Wow. Um, yeah. I and I will also, I'll also add my sister was the student body president at UCLA four oh, years okay. later. And so there's this big connection between, and I was the student on the board of regents when I was there. And right. there's still I, a I really body. amazing connection between the former student leaders. Uh, we all feel like a great pride in having been at UCLA. Oh, that's amazing. And so amazing to hear all of the, not only, of course, your your double Bruin experience, undergrad and then law school, but just all the connections as you shared um, and people you were able to meet that you you know were able to end up calling colleagues and, and sit on boards with and things like that, all from having that UCLA foundation and being a part of that, the Bruin community. I think that's so amazing. Yes. In fact, one other final connection, the biggest UCLA board I'm on is the UCLA Foundation. And the person who invited me to join was the chair of the board, Craig Ehrlich, whom oh, I was friends with from my time at UCLA. And oh he was the student body president there right before I started and our leadership sort of service overlapped. And so I'm also on the foundation board because of the friendship with him that I developed as a student at UCLA. Oh, love it. It's, I think the power of the Bruin Network is just incredible. And through all these interviews that I've been able to do, I think that theme comes out time and time again with all of the Bruins I've interviewed, just the people they were able to meet and those networks and connections they still have to this day of friends and colleagues. It's just, it's amazing. So my final question um, is since leaving UCLA, how has your career and life experiences shaped how you define success? I think that's a great question. I'm not sure how my career has shaped how I define success. Um, I think success is much more internal. You know, I think there are people what I have, what I have found from working with so many leaders in so many different fields is that success has so little to do with what position a person is in or how much money a person has made or how many people they are the boss of. Success is really a sense of satisfaction, a sense of having reached one's own potential. And so there are things I do each day where I feel a huge sense of success. I feel that I threw out an idea people really like, or I helped one of my children in a way that made them smile. And yet I still feel that I haven't made enough of a difference in the bigger world. So on some levels, probably I will never feel like a 
huge success because I think that I'm not sure what that feels like, but I have little moments of success probably every day of that feeling like, wow, if I hadn't said this, the path would have been different. You know, I throw a lot of pebbles in the pond. And (laughs) so to me, that feels, that feels successful. I, um, but I don't think, uh, you know, I don't look at what I've done. I guess, I guess to the extent that I feel successful, I feel that I've done the best I could do with the possibilities that I've had. Got it. Wow. Yeah. I, I think like you shared, I love the pebbles in the pond metaphor. It is, I think, so much, so much of the time, those small everyday wins and even little victories that add up to, you know, feeling like, okay, I'm making progress and I'm, you know, and as you said, you know, okay, I had a success or here's my win of the day. Um, and I loved what you shared too, about, you know, success is kind of like reaching one's own potential. And so knowing that that's this evolving thing. And, you know, as you continue to find those opportunities or lean into different experiences, you're growing and bending in different ways that you can, I think, become, you know, more fulfilled and satisfied with what you're doing. So I, yeah, I love, I love your answer um, of just, you know, having those little moments that can add up to feeling like, okay, like I, you know, felt successful in this moment um, versus, you know, like you said, maybe some of those traditional markers of making X amount of, you know, six figures and that's success. And this means I've, you know, reached the pinnacle or something like that. So, um, I loved your answer to that for sure. Thank you. Well, Leslie, that is all I have for us today. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on Bruin Success today. I really enjoyed our conversation and getting to know you and learning about um, your career journey and your life um, up until this point. So I also wanted to take a moment as a member of the UCLA Foundation Board of Directors, along with the many other UCLA affiliated boards that you sit on, thank you so much for your continued support and service to UCLA. We are so grateful to have alumni like you who have dedicated a part of their lives to making UCLA a better place for the next generation of Bruins. So thank you for all you do for UCLA, Leslie. Thank you so much, Katie. This has been great. And, you know, it just occurred to me that this is how I define success by the fact that you want to talk to me on a UCLA success podcast. That is success. I I know I've made it. (laughs) Exactly. There we go. Absolutely. You've been listening to Bruin Success. Our guest this week was Leslie Gilbert-Lurie lawyer, human rights, and children's rights advocate, author, and philanthropist. You can find more information on Leslie in the description of the episode. Follow Alumni Career Engagement on Instagram and Facebook to keep up with Bruin success. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe to it, tell a friend, or share your support on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in 2021 with another inspiring Bruin. This podcast was made possible by UCLA alumni.